Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone. This is Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to be talking about David Byrne versus the other talking heads, specifically Chris France and Tina Weymouth. Ooh. Since Axel and Slash got back together, I'd have to say, I think Talking Heads may be sitting at the top of the uh, we are never, ever, ever, ever getting back together list, wouldn't you say? Oh, no doubt. No doubt in the world. Definitely the top of my like personal wish list, though. It's like definitely the band that I really want to see get back together most, even though it'll never happen. It's funny, the feud always reminded me in a lot of ways of this feud that split up the band, where you have this like genial, laid-back Southern drummer starting a group only to be usurped by this lone songwriter who sort of absorbed the the drummer's essence and grooves. But I don't know. I like David Byrne a hell of a lot more than I like Robbie Robertson, though. Yeah, I mean, I love David Byrne, too. And I love the Talking Heads, and I agree. I mean, this is like a band that I wish I could have seen live, and I have no faith at all that they will ever get back together. Even in this age of, like, ever-present reunion tours, it seems pretty safe to assume that Talking Heads will not be reuniting. And I, I suspect that... It, Became even less likely uh, this year when former Talking Heads drummer Chris France published a memoir called Remain in Love. Uh, did you read that book, by the way? Uh, I read pieces of it. I Yes, it is pretty damning. Yeah, I mean, basically in the book, Chris France argues, and I think pretty convincingly, that David Byrne stole songwriting credits, that he took credit for other ideas that weren't his, and that he's essentially like a huge glory hog. And while I don't think everything that France says in his book should be taken at face value, and we'll get into that in this episode, the fact that so much of the Talking Heads conversation has been about Burn and not about the band um, is something that really ought to be addressed and I think probably corrected. So I feel like we're going to do that in this episode and get into everything else about the Talking Heads. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. The crux of the feud is really between the three co-founders, David Byrne, Chris Franz, and Tina Weymouth, 
who were classmates at uh, RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. And the whole premise of starting the band was uh, Francis' idea. He had this dream of starting a band that would basically be like a dancey art rock band that, that used R&B rhythms. And he spent a year trying to find the right bassist, but eventually convinced his girlfriend, Tina, to pick up the instrument and give it a shot. And then when Chris suggested to, uh, to his friend David that he join their little rhythm section, I guess David muttered, uh, I guess so, without looking Franz in the eye. <laughs> Yeah, like when you read the book, like the way he describes David Byrne in this era is like is pretty funny. Like he kind of sounds like the kid that I think lives on every like floor in a college dorm. You know, like the kid that keeps to himself, who wears weird clothes, and like I think at that time, like David Byrne had like a really unkempt beard. So you know, he was just this like kind of socially awkward person, and it makes it like pretty plain in a way that David Byrne's onstage persona like isn't just an affectation that right. in a way that this is like a pretty like genuine expression of who he is and it seems like it made it really hard to be around him it, in a weird way it kind of makes him seem more authentic because it's yeah. like oh yeah like he wasn't just this dude pretending to be like a sweaty oddball guy like in a really big suit like he really really like was that guy <laughs> that you know made him like one of the most unique frontmen in rock history Oh, yeah, he really was aloof and shy, and he had a hard time looking people in the eye. And he was definitely socially distanced before it was cool. I know a lot of the friends <laughs> at RISD thought that, like, wait, you're, you're starting a band with this guy as your front man? I think, I think the phrase that, that, that Chris used was a thin reed to lean on. Did you ever see right. their, uh, their first band appearance on uh, American Bandstand in 1979? Yeah, I mean, I think Dick Clark asks David Byrne, like, one question, and it's clear that this isn't going to go anywhere. So then he, like, instantly changes course and just talks to Tina Weymu. Right. But it's like, it's sort of just amazing. It's like almost like breaking the fourth wall of a show like Bandstand. And that early too, it's just weird to see something go sort of that awry on such a glitzy, like slick show at that era. So, and I guess that in a lot of ways kind of like is one of the things I love about David Byrne too, is that he, he's so much his own person. Well, hasn't he said subsequently that he's basically on the spectrum that like he either is like mildly autistic or might have like borderline like Asperger's. I mean, I think he has said that and it, it, it puts his behavior in a different light when you right. consider that. He says that, that he thinks he, he may have had that when in his younger days and then he may have grew, he thinks he grew out of it, which I'm not a doctor. I don't know if that's how that works. But whatever's the case, it's fair to say that for all of David's musical gifts and, and his very unique slant on the world, he found it really hard to sort of meet the social demands of working with other people. But something that's also really interesting, which is also in Chris's book, is that he had this kind of ruthless determination and ambition that kind of seems at odds with his really shy personality. In the book, there's a story where there was a um, art gallery show and David's work was in it. And I guess he snuck in the night before the, uh, the show opened and David put his own work to the very front of the gallery. So it looked like yeah. he, he was like the headliner of that art gallery show, which uh, is very telling, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, I, in the book, that's definitely like what they would call a foreshadowing episode of what's <laughs> going to happen like later on in the book. And it's also a foreshadowing, I guess, of what's going to happen in this episode. But yeah, like from very early on, I think Chris France asserts this idea that David Byrne had a way of pushing himself to the front, even if he seemed ill at ease at times in the spotlight. Um, he also admits in the book that as awkward as David Byrne could be, just in regular conversation, that he was undeniably a charismatic frontman. That, like, when he was on stage, even when he hadn't quite found his voice yet as a vocalist, that, like, you couldn't really take your eyes off of him. 
we're going to get into this in the episode. I think there's lots of things that explain the Talking Heads success, but like a big part of, I think, what makes that band unique is the fact that David Byrne, especially for that time, was like the last person you would expect to be singing in a rock band. You know, like he was not Roger Daltrey. <laughs> he was not Robert Plant or Mick Jagger. He was like a whole other archetype for like what a rock star could be. Right. I mean, just getting up there. Moving the way he moved in, like his what was it, like Lacoste shirt? Like he he looked like he was out of like an honor society program, right on stage at CBGBs or something. Like it definitely didn't didn't compute. So, the early days of the band, as they existed in New York, you know, because they ended up moving to New York City after graduating from art school. Really, it's like one of my favorite parts of the book. I mean, Chris France writes really evocatively about like the life that they had as these sort of young bohemians living in. Uh, 1970s New York, when New York was like really this dangerous place, like where, you know, if you were living in like the Soho area, there were like literally dead bodies like laying on the sidewalk and no one would come around to pick it up. At least that's how Chris France writes about it. From Chris's perspective, he really looks at Tina as being, I guess, like the caretaker of the band. Like she was the one that was booking their gigs. Like she would make sure that they got paid at the end of the night. So she was playing this really big role in the band. And yet musically, she was the least experienced out of anyone in the band. And this ended up being like a real point of contention with, you know, between David Byrne and Tina Weymouth, you know, well into the existence of Talking Heads, where David Byrne constantly felt that Tina Weymouth wasn't up to snuff musically. It seems like, I mean, because there's stories about this in the book that like he considered like firing her from the band for the longest time. I mean, like well into like the recording of their first record, right? Oh, yeah. When they got signed on uh, on Sire Records, he made Tina audition for her own role in the band three times, which is, a, a, I mean, it's kind of amazing that she like stuck it out. And by like time number two, wasn't like, no, go to hell. Like, I don't I don't need this. But which is weird because I love her bass playing. I actually think I like her earlier bass playing best because it, it reminds me of Mo Tucker's kind of like grade school style, like primitive playing that that does sound so rock and roll and punk. I just think that's something that was so integral to the band's early sound. It's interesting to me that, yeah. that David hated it so much. Yeah, it's um, it's strange to me that he just focused on her so much because, yeah, I agree with you. I think she's like a great bass player. And, you know, I don't know enough about bass playing to know like what technical proficiency is. I mean, this is something you should comment on because you're a bass player yourself. But like, I just know as a listener, like what I respond to and like her bass lines were always like, really unique. It was this combination of, again, like really funky grooves that was coming at it from like a slightly different direction. Like she wasn't playing like a conventional sort of R&B or funk bassist. And yet she could be just as funky as those people. It was like this, again, like fractured art rock version of what they were doing. And to me, like when you think about the sound of the talking heads, her bass playing is like a huge part of that. And to replace her with like a more conventional bass player, I think would have just defeated the purpose of this band, you know, like the point of the Talking Heads isn't that they were just like a, a straightforward funk band. They would have been the Ohio Players then or something if that was <laughs> right. what they were doing. And the Ohio Players are great, you know, but like the Ohio Players can like play circles around the Talking Heads if you're just doing like a straight ahead funk type thing. Talking Heads were about taking this music and giving you a perspective on it that was different at the time and would make you look at it in a totally unique way. And again, I think, yeah, Tina Weymouth was like such a huge part of that. But yeah, it just seems like generally David Byrne just did not respect what she brought to the band. And of course, that ends up being a big theme of Chris Francis' book. And of course, Tina is Chris's wife, so he's even more protective of her in that regard. But yeah, from the beginning of this band, it just seems like there were these two different camps in the band that were going to be fighting for control. 
She gave an interview in the uh, in the documentary Girls and Bands where she she claimed that David told her he thought a woman's role really shouldn't be in the big world because it was a dangerous place for women. So according to her, that was the kind of mentality she was up against in the band and I'm sure the culture at large in, in the mid 70s. And to your point, when you're an inexperienced young bass player, you're so anxious to just hit the right notes and and to get there and just make sure your fingers are in the right place. You're not as focused on groove and flow and just kind of like being a little bit more more liquid, I guess. You're just you just want to hit it and it gives it this funny, rigid lockstep sound that I think is is really integral to early punk and definitely the early talking heads. So I think a lot of that sound where it's kind of herky jerky and, and rigid is sort of where that came from. It came from her. And this is going to be something that we're going to explore a bit in this episode about like what made Talking Heads great. Because I think there's two different perspectives on that, depending on like what camp you're in. I think David Byrne had an idea of what the band was and what made them unique. And I think France and Weymouth had their own idea. And ultimately, I think it's what they brought together that is what makes the Talking Heads like, you know, one of the great American bands, I think. Yeah, there was definitely like a war going on about like who's going to be in control and what the direction of the band was going to be. And it seems like in the early days that when it was just Burn, France, and Weymouth, that they were basically a democracy. And it makes me think of a, about the writing of the song Warning Sign, for instance, which is a song on their second record, more songs about buildings and food, but was actually like among the first songs they ever wrote. And it's also like one of the first big conflicts in this band. Yeah, I think... Chris said that he wrote it during during college. He wrote it almost completely on his own years before David was even in the picture, I think. And so they recorded it for their second album, and then David made some tweaks to it and just credited the song to himself. And Chris said that he didn't really realize that until he got the finished record and saw the, the credits on the on the sleeve and said, well, wait a minute, you, you, I, I did that. And David, to his credit, uh, promised him that it would be fixed on future pressings, and it was. But uh, it's something that kind of kept reoccurring. And again, it reminds me of the band, too, where there's something that was creative so collectively that then when the record is released, they look at it and see this just credited to one person. And apologies are made, but it keeps happening again and again and again. Well, yeah, it happens again for the song Life During Wartime, which was on the next Talking Heads record, 1979's Fear of Music. And that's like one of their most famous songs. It's the song where they say, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no fooling around, like that song. One of the most quotable lines in any Talking Heads song. And according to France, that's a song that came out of a jam session between him and Tina. He says that Tina actually like wrote the vocal melody of that song. And of course, when the record comes out, it's credited solely to David Byrne. And it's interesting to me, this whole idea about songwriting versus like the sound of a band. Because obviously, when we talk about what makes money in a band, like songwriting is huge. Like publishing is one of the most reliable ways for a musician to make a lot of money, like once they start making records. And often too, like in terms of like how we talk about music, it seems like fans and critics, like we fixate on songwriting being the hallmark of like the height of creativity. Like, are you a great songwriter? That means that you are like the auteur of the band, like if you're writing the songs. But I, I feel like songwriting, and I don't know how you feel about this, I feel like songwriting can be a little overrated. That a lot of times with a band, yeah, you need great songs, but it's also about this sort of intangible chemistry that exists between musicians that ends up creating this unique sound. And that is just as important for a band being great. It's just like, 
that's harder to quantify. Like you, you can point to a song on paper and say, this is what a song is, and we know what it is. But that elusive chemistry thing, like you can't really put that on paper. It's just something that exists and you know it when you hear it. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes me think a lot of the documentaries you see on like the Wrecking Crew or the, uh, or the Funk Brothers, where I think Carol Kay, another incredible female bassist, uh, was talking about playing The Beat Goes On, the Sonny and Cher song. And it was just this kind of straight ahead bland pop song. And she came up with the boom, 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 which makes the song. I mean, that's the hook of the song. And I don't think right. she got anything for that other than the standard session rate. So, yeah, it's interesting about what actually makes a song successful. You can you can write all the notes of the melody and write the chord sheets and everything down. But there are these little magic moments when the band gets together that really actually make it take off. And I think the Talking Heads are a great example of that, where it is such a collective sound. And yeah, his words are unbelievable. But uh, but yeah, the rhythm especially. I mean, you really, I mean, Jerry Harrison, when, when he joined, he was... He was on their first one too, right? Yeah, he was on 77 after they yeah. got signed to Sire. Yeah, I mean, I, he brought a lot, but especially Chris and Tina in the early club days before they were signed. I mean, so much of it was about their rhythm and groove. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's two things I would say about songwriting and talking heads. And like one could be a defensive burn and one could be a defensive France and Weymouth. Like on one hand, like when you read Chris Francis' book, Remain in Love, you know, he talks about warning sign he talks about life during wartime. He talks about the song Psycho Killer, like how all the members of the band were throwing out lyrics and how they basically wrote that song together. And there's also the example of Remain in Light, that album. We're going to talk about that in a minute, the collaborative aspects of that. But for the most part in that book, like there's not a ton of information about how songs are written or like how albums are made. Like instead, there's like a lot of material about like going on the road including like a really long chapter that is almost like a blow by blow account of their first European tour. It's almost like too long. Like I had to skip some parts of that chapter. I have to say too, like when I read rock memoirs, I rarely read them from cover to cover because like, I don't care about the part before they got famous. Right. And then I don't really care about the part like after they stopped making great records. Like I only want the meat in there. And that's true of Chris Francis book too. That was how I tackled um, that book too. Yeah. And I just feel like, you know, maybe he didn't include some of that material about the making of, say, Fear of Music or, you know, Speaking in Tongues. But I feel like if they had been in on more songwriting sessions, like he would have written about that, you know, because it just seems like that would have bolstered his case for uh, them being these vital contributors to the songwriting of the band. And there's a lot of stories in there about, like, Chris being backstage and like partying and doing blow with like other people and having a great time. And David Byrne is nowhere to be found. <laughs> and I'm just wondering at those moments, like well, was David writing songs at that time? He's probably like chilling out, you know, I don't know. To me, like if you read between the lines in that book, there's a case to be made that maybe David Byrne was doing a lot of work while Chris was having some good times. On the other hand, I do think kind of going back to my point before that with the talking heads, I think they have great songs, but to me, their music is just about the sound or, or just as much about the sound as it is about the songs, like the way that they play together. And to me, that's especially true of, to me, their greatest album and like one of the greatest albums ever made, Remain in Light. I think Remain in Light has great songs, but it's about how those songs come together and just the crazy grooves and like all the ideas that exist in that music. And to me, that's about the band more than like any one person. Which is weird when you consider how it actually all came together. 
Do you know the story? It actually, it seemed like the band was about to break up after their uh, 1979 European tour. Yeah, I heard that story. I mean, basically, like, Byrne, didn't he tell a journalist that he was, like, about to quit the band? Yeah, and then the journalist goes and finds Tina and Chris and said, well, what do you have to say about this? David just told me he's quitting. And they essentially said, well, that's news to us. And this is the point when uh, David and Brian Eno have been working more and more closely together. Uh, he's... David wanted to kind of go off and do more of stuff like My Life in the in the Bush of Ghosts and albums like that. So Tina, Chris, and Jerry booked their own sessions with Brian, uh, just sort of instrumental sessions to, to jam in a way that I always kind of took to sort of like make David jealous and to kind of bring him back into the fold like that and just say, well, okay, well, they're all hanging out. Well, maybe I'll join too. And, and those early sessions were what evolved into Remain in Light, which, as you said, I, I definitely think it's the most collaborative album they've ever made. Like they, they really brought so many different elements to it. Yeah, and I think it started out with that idea too. I think it was very much of an intentional thing. Like I think even Byrne agreed at the beginning that this was going to be a collaborative record. Like we're all going to be working together we're all going to be, you know, coming up with ideas. We're all, and the amazing thing about that record is that it, it it sounds like they're working with loops, you know, or that, you know, that they're sort of piecing this together, maybe just like in a studio somewhere. And I, there was obviously like a lot of overdubs on that album, but a lot of the amazing music on that record was just, it just came out of them playing together in a room. And um, it really does, I think, represent like a pretty high level of creativity for a band. Could David Byrne have done that record if he was working with like session musicians, you know, that that he just put together, you know, possibly, you know, but I, I really feel like that record was the combination of like those people working together, bringing in other collaborators and just having that certain special chemistry that could create an album that amazing. Yeah, I mean, you got elements of funk, you got electronica, you got these like African polyrhythms. It sounds like something like Fela Kuti would have done or something like that. And like you said, I, I don't think that it probably would have ended up sounding almost more like a Steely Dan type album like if, if he just got a bunch of session guys in there, I feel like. Yeah, so, you know, they're working on this record. And like you said, I think initially the idea of them jamming together was just to get David Byrne back into the band because, you know, he was working on uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts with Brian Eno, which is an amazing record, by the way. Um, and is, I think, somewhat similar to what they were doing on Remain in Light. But I think Remain in Light is ultimately, you know, a, a greater record. But of course, when it comes down to putting this record out, there's another disagreement about credits. And I, I mean, do you know the story? I mean, initially, I think Brian Eno, like, wanted to be credited, like, in the top line of the record, that he wanted to be, like, Talking Heads and Brian Eno. And of course, Talking Heads scuttled that idea. But then there was another weird thing with the songwriting credits. Oh, yeah. Weren't they all? It was going to be all alphabetical. And then David, probably with Eno's help, went and switched it around somehow. What did he do? Yeah, well, it was going to be all the band members listed alphabetically, like like you said. So it would have been like, you know, David Byrne, Brian Eno, Chris Franz, Jerry Harrison, Tina Weymouth. And then when the record came out, it was David Byrne, Brian Eno, Talking Heads. That's so, so weird. like everyone else in the band was just put into the Talking Heads camp. And again, it was this idea of like David Byrne separating himself from the rest of the band when in reality again i mean look no one is going to sort of overlook david burns contributions to that record and again, i mean i think vocally he sounds amazing on that record and i love his lyrics but to me that's like the epitome of like a collaborative effort and uh to say that like david burns contributions or brian Eno's contributions were any more than the people in the band it just seems like kind of a cheesy move <laughs> by burn you know it just doesn't seem warranted 
Yeah, I mean, just to other himself like that from his own band, a really weird move. Yeah. Reminds me of in Gilligan's Island when they're doing the theme and then they just do the end the rest part. No one likes that. <laughs> good Gilligan's Island ref, yeah, by the way. You. It's always good to bring Gilligan's Island into an episode. <laughs> All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. A podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Another crazy thing that was happening around this time, of course, was Tom Tom Club with, with with Chris and Tina, because you have David Byrne establishing his own solo thing. He's got My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, and then he's going to do another album called The Catherine Wheel. And of course, you know, I think David Byrne got like a pretty big solo deal around this time. So he's getting a lot of money to put out these records. Whereas Chris and Tina, they start putting together Tom Tom Club, and there's not a ton of interest, I think, from labels. But then they end up having a huge success. And I know you're a big Tom Tom Club fan. Oh, yeah. That album is nuts because it reminds me of, of sort of like the British beat boom in the early 60s when you got a bunch of like like white students 
trying to play the blues and they kind of screw it up and they kind of make their own thing. That's how I feel about Tom Tom Club in regards to hearing emerging hip hop sounds out in the Bronx and they kind of do their own thing with it and create something by accident that fuses a little more electro and with hip hop and some late 70s funk influences. And it's fascinating. I think anyone who doubts Chris and Tina's contributions to the Talking Heads should definitely get more into that record because it's it's so just so distinct and you see so clearly what they brought to those to stuff like remain in light it, it, an incredible album and uh did very well and i think david hated it yeah I, that's right like didn't he just say it was like merely commercial uh merely popular i think was what he called it right yeah he was definitely like putting it down but i think it was pretty clear that he was jealous i think like like they could tell that it, it bothered him so like on some level they must have gotten some enjoyment out of, you know, how pissed off he was. Because, you know, again, I you know, the records that he made at that time, I think, are really well regarded, especially My Life in the Bush of Ghost. But, you know, clearly, like, that album, like, wasn't a hit at all. I mean, it was more of, like, a critical favorite. And then Tom Tom Club, I, I think, ended up going gold. I think it beat Talking Heads to growing gold. I think that, I don't think any of their albums have gone gold up to that point. So, yeah, that, and, and David was doing Catherine Wheel with, like, was it Twyla Farp, I think? Was aiming for fine art credibility and so you can see where he's coming from with his merely popular comments like well okay anyone can get a number three song or whatever it was but like i'm i'm actually trying to make genuine real fine art here so that's creating a lot of tension obviously (laughs) between david chris and tina and you know it it's interesting looking at this in retrospect because i feel like david would talk about this in subsequent years that i think from his perspective he was almost like a guy that like wants to get out of a bad relationship, but he doesn't have the guts to break up with the girl. So he just starts acting like a jerk, hoping that <laughs> she'll break up with him. Like that seems to be the dynamic at this time, because I think David would say later on, he, he was like, you know, like, why did they want to be in a band with me? I mean, they were unhappy. You know, it seemed like there was a lot of tension. You know, it's it, they would complain about David Byrne, but like they also wanted to keep working with him. And it seemed like, you know, as they would go on in their career, that there was just, you know, I guess starting with Remain in Light, where they had to sort of like trick him to get into the studio, that, um, you know, every project that they would work on after that, including, you know, music that we all love, like al- like the album Speaking in Tongues, which I think which, which was the first platinum record that Talking Heads ever put out. And then, of course, Stop Making Sense, uh, that concert film comes out of that tour. But it just seems like David Byrne is taking more and more control and doing what he can do to alienate Chris and Tina. But like Chris and Tina, they're upset about it, but they won't actually split up the band. Yeah, you would say in later years, Tina would send David these letters that would just open up with paragraphs, just calling him every name under the sun and what a jerk he was and all a litany of all the things that they'd done to he'd done to wrong them. And then at the end, be like, so, so why don't you want to be with us anymore? Why don't you want to play with us? And he would get all confused and say, well, you kind of answered your own question. You know, why would I want to be around these people that clearly hate me as much as they do? And also, like you said, why do you want to be around me? Like, this isn't good for anybody. It's fascinating to me because, you know, when you think about the Talking Heads, like in the early 80s, I think a lot of us think about the film Stop Making Sense, uh, which is, for my money, it's like the greatest concert film ever made. I mean, you could maybe say The Last Waltz would be in the conversation. But, um, you know, Stop Making Sense, it's such a blast of joy, you know, when you watch mm. it. And, and it's one of those movies, like, I've seen it a couple times in, in movie theaters. 
And people get up out of their seats and dance in the aisles, like during that movie. I mean, that's how infectious it is. And you just think like, oh, wow, like this is such a happy band. And and yet, like they were going through such misery behind the scenes. And like, you know, as as much as we associate like that tour with the film, that was also their last tour, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the tour where David sort of like stormed off on stage. They were playing, I think, the last show of the tour down in New Zealand. And he started the show by by uh, letting some protesters come up and and share. I think it was uh, indigenous peoples wanted to 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 share their what what they had to say. And David let them up. And it did not go down well with the crowd who started booing them and the band. So the vibe was already really bad when they started to play. And they get a few songs in and David walks off the stage. I think it was like after five songs or something. And the others are just kind of playing, waiting for him to come back. And I think Chris goes and chases him and literally drags him back on. And David's saying, you know, what do I want to, what do I want to play with these audiences who just have their feet stuck in the mud, which is a weird thing to say when it wasn't raining. And it was just a miserable show and he kind of begrudgingly finished it. And then after the show, there was an after party and I don't think David even showed up. And it was just pretty clear by that point that, that he was done and he didn't want to go on the road anymore. And every time the rest of the band would mention it, he would just say, you know, all you want is the money. You don't want to go out there actually on the road. All you, all you want is money. So that would kind of moot any, uh, any touring discussions. And then there was this weird thing, which I, when I read this, I couldn't really believe that this was even on the table, but I think Chris and Tina like approached, Adrian Ballou, who was like this brilliant guitar player. He was a, he was a touring member of the Talking Heads uh, in the early 80s. He'd also like played with, I think he played like with, did he play with like David Bowie and like King Crimson? I mean, like he has oh, like a King great Crimson, art rock, yeah, yeah. like pedigree. And um, they approached Adrian Ballou about becoming the new frontman of Talking Heads. There's been some debate in later years as to whether or not that was what they were actually offering or, or inviting him to actually just join the band as, a, as another guitarist. But yeah, w- wisely, uh, he was kind of like, no, no, thank you. I don't really, the ship seems to be going down at this point because it, it was pretty clear that that they were not a happy group by this point. Yeah, so, you know, they play this terrible show in New Zealand. You know, Byrne st- you know, storms off stage. He says he doesn't want to tour anymore. And you would think that, like, maybe at that point, the writing should have been on the wall, you know, that like, okay, like, David doesn't want to tour anymore. He's less and less interested in our input. And then you get into those like last couple Talking Heads records. You have like you know, Little Creatures comes out in 1985. And then you have True Stories comes out in 86. It's a soundtrack to a film that David Byrne directed. And I mean, those albums, you know, as much as like Remain in Light feels like a very collaborative album, like those albums feel like David Byrne's solo records where the band is backing him up. I mean, is that fair to say? I mean, because I know that like for Little Creatures, for instance, like David Byrne just like came into the studio with like finished songs, I think for the first time ever. And it seemed like more than ever, like at that point, he was just presenting his songs to the band. Yeah, he was pretty explicit about saying, you know, all right, you want to make a record with me? I'm going to handle the songs. And he would come in with like tapes on his boombox and play it to the band and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. But I think that there was still a lot of of group arrangement going on too, which which Chris says in his book, the band didn't really get credit for. And and they were almost sort of used to it by that point. They were just like, okay, this is what he's like. This is how he is. If, if we're going to make music with him, that's the deal. We're just going to keep on making good music and, and we'll keep on going as a band. Because I think at that point, again, you use the abusive relationship analogy and they were kind of like, well, 
I'm being treated really poorly, but this band is the most important thing. It's more important than me. It's more important than him. It's more important than all of us. It's all about the band. And if we want to stay together, I'm just going to take whatever he dishes out. So you said they, they were really reduced to side men by that point. You know, this is such an issue. I, I don't know what your take is on this, but like, you know, when I read Chris Francis book, there were a lot of things I was sympathetic about. And we've talked about some of those things already, you know, again, like the warning sign example, life during wartime, remain in light, you know, the weird things that happen with the songwriting credits there. I think that's all legitimate. I have to say that at this moment in time, this idea of that, like, I'm just going to be a doormat for David Byrne. I have a hard time accepting this because Chris and Tina, they had Tom Tom Club. You know, they'd had success with that. It's like, why are you still in this situation where you feel so poorly treated? I just don't understand what the motivation would have been. And it, it, Unless it was economic. I mean, really, I mean, that that seems like the only explanation that like we're in this very successful band. And, you know, as much as we don't like David Byrne, maybe on some level, we recognize that we will be much better off financially if we're with him. I mean, is that the only explanation for them still being a band like at this point, like in the mid 80s? I mean, the book, you get the impression that Chris in the book is very, I don't know if naive is the right word, but sort of like wide-eyed and and you get the idea that, that he is overblown, just completely bowled over by David's talent too. So if you're going to take the less cynical approach and say maybe it wasn't just purely we're in this huge band that could net us a ton of money with, with albums and tours, maybe they just wanted to work with him because they thought he was such a genius artist. That's that's my my more optimistic approach to it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that's true on some level, but I have to go back to like the reading between the lines aspect, which I right. feel like with a lot of rock memoirs you have to do. You have to like read what they're saying, but then you also have to look at like what they're leaving out. And to me, what's left out of this story is maybe an acknowledgement that they were not going to be as successful without David Byrne as they were with him. And that David Burnett by this time had enough celebrity where right or wrong, he could assume the mantle of talking heads on his own, which has proved to be true after the band broke up. Like as much as David Byrne has like not wanted to reunite with the band, he also hasn't been shy about exploiting the legacy of talking heads for like for his own benefit. And I think he learned at some point that like, I can play these songs on my own and I can reap the benefits of it without having to deal with these other people that I'm maybe sick of being around. Um, you know, there must have been maybe some realization on the part of Chris and perhaps Tina. Like, I think there's probably some powerlessness that they were experiencing at that time. It's like, it sucks for them that that ended up being true. But like, that seems to be how things unfolded. Because if you look at their breakup, you know, I think the breakup was announced in 1991. And it was after David Byrne did this interview. I think he was talking to the Los Angeles Times. And by the way, this was like three years after the last Talking Heads record, which was Naked, came out in 1988. No tour for that album, of course. Um, and David Byrne, I think, had already gotten his solo career going uh, by that point. And if you look at that LA Times interview, like David Byrne just basically snaps at this reporter, right? Like the reporter's asking him about Talking Heads and he's like, dude, we broke up, all right? Or we broke up or whatever, I think is the quote. Isn't it something like that? Yeah, he's promoting, uh-oh, solo album. And the only interview he wants to do is ask about when the next Talking Heads record is coming. And he finally just says, you could say we've broken up. Call it whatever you like. Stops that line of questioning dead. And of course, Tina, Chris, and Jerry knew nothing about this. And they found out when the interview was published. Just cold. Well, and I mean... I love this story, even though it's kind of sad. I mean, they ended up having like one final band meeting and like, David has a pretty amazing quote, like a, a, a parting shot. Like, do, like, do you know what he said? <laughs> I love this. I, I really want to hear you say it though. Well, he said, you know, 
again, it, it's kind of going back to this thing that I was talking about before about how I think in David Byrne's mind, he was acting in a way that like should have made, made the it band want to dump him. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to break up with you, but I'm making it clear that like you should break up with me. And uh, at one point he just like yells at the other people in the band, David Byrne. He says, you should be calling me an asshole. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like he snaps. It's almost like he lost respect for them because right. they didn't stand up to him. You know, that seemed to be the dynamic at the end of the band. And and they would say in later years, Chris and Tina would say, you know, we thought that if we just kind of like smiled and took it and just like waited it out, like he would come back, like he did for Remain in Light and everything. And and finally, it was clear at this point, you know, how many years, 12 years after Remain in Light, that, that the rest of the band weren't getting the memo. David didn't want to be there. So then he screams, you, you should be calling me an asshole, which again, like you said, incredible parting shot. So one of the weirdest things for me, like after that breakup that occurs in 1991, was the story of the Heads, that oh. sort of reunion record. Do you remember that record? I, I couldn't get into it, even though they had some great names on it. I mean, they had Debbie Harry, they had Andy Partridge, the guy from NXS, dude from Happy Mondays. Like, but yeah, I didn't find it very listenable. Yeah, like the idea was that the three band members of the Talking Heads, you know, Chris, Tina, and Jerry Harrison. Poor Jerry Harrison, by the way, who we have not really talked about. It seemed like he was just sort of on the sidelines of all this. And, of course, he ended up joining the band after they got their record deal uh, for Talking Head 77. And it seemed like he was sort of like outside of a lot of this psychodrama going on between David, Chris, and Tina. But anyway, like on the Heads record, which, by the way, was called No Talking, Just Head. Which is like the best part of that record is the yes. album title. Like It's all downhill from there. But yeah, like the idea was that like they would play and they'd have different singers perform on each song. And I feel like all that album did was underscore how the Talking Heads are not as interesting if David Byrne is not the lead singer. That <laughs> like right. as great as the band is, that if you have Michael Hutchins singing, it's just not the same thing. As great as Michael Hutchins is. Michael Hutchins should be in NXS. He shouldn't be in Talking Heads. You know, all those other people, they should be doing their own thing. They shouldn't be in the talking heads. So. And that's, like, that's like a tribute album move to have like a different singer on every song, too. Like that, that just confused me, too. Like I couldn't I couldn't get comfortable with what I was hearing because I felt like every time I every new song was just a totally different thing. Another thing I feel like we should talk about, and I feel a little weird about this because <laughs> this book, I think, is kind of problematic. Uh, it's a talking heads biography that came out in 2002 written by David Bowman. It's called This Must Be the Place. The Adventures of Talking Heads in the 20th Century. And I feel like the most memorable part of this book has to deal with Tina and David's relationship. And I mean, is am I going too far to suggest that that book is like a hatchet job against Tina Weymouth? I mean, it's pretty brutal it's, toward her. Oh, yeah. I mean, he characterizes Tina as a little brittle with the vibe of a Catholic saint or maybe a tragically lame prima ballerina or maybe Valerie Solanus, the woman who shot Andy Warhol. Ugh. So, yeah, and, and that's just describing her. That's not even the stuff that he alleges that she did. Yeah, I mean, can you tell the baby penis story? I mean, this blows me away. <laughs> I thought I thought you like, never asked. <laughs> the baby penis aspect of this book, I... I don't I don't know whether to take it at face value or not. I feel like we should preface this by saying that like a lot of these stories like are based on like unnamed sources who yes. are maybe I'm guessing are good friends of David Byrne 
And I don't know if David put them up to this or if they just felt the need to defend him. But yeah, the baby penis story is definitely the weirdest. Well, in Bowman's book, he claims that Tina would call several of David's old friends in the middle of the night to tell them that he had, and now I'm quoting, a baby penis. Which is, I think, unprecedented in the, you know, post-band breakup fallout, like, revenge moves. I've, I've never heard of that. That is extremely yeah, kids, weird. If you have baby penis on your rival's bingo card, <laughs> uh, congratulations. I know you didn't expect to mark that, but uh, yeah, we, we, we have our first baby penis in, uh, in a rival's episode. And then he, she also apparently allegedly claimed that David killed the boy at a party in Brazil using voodoo. Uh, she said this, there was a, a, an article that Bowman wrote, I think for Salon. And this is, she's quoted as saying, David is a vampire in a way. Uh, it might be something more complex. Psychics have seen him and they say he just has a firewall around him. Uh, that's a scary quote. Uh, and, and Bowman's sort of the, he thinks that this is born out of Tina is actually secretly in love with David, that they, they'd had some relationship back at RISD and it didn't work out. And now she's just trying to destroy him. That's, I think where he's coming from with this, which is like, I, you know, that's, a, that's distasteful to me. I guess I'll put it that way. So many there's ways. something very, yeah, there's something very sort of stereotypical about painting yeah. Tina Weymouth as like some sort of scorned, woman uh, especially since her husband is also in the band i i right. don't know that i mean that i have a hard time sort of wrapping my head around i mean one thing I, that i think does make sense to me there in the in the book you know there's you know david Byrne is basically again kind of reiterating this idea that like chris and i guess you know i guess especially tina like really came to hate him by the end of the band and there's a quote in there where he'd say, you know, they'd say what a fucking dumb jerk and asshole piece of shit I was. Uh, and he's referring to like letters that Tina would send to him, supposedly. And he said it would go into detail about how badly I behaved, what a terrible person I was, how hard I was to work with, how unfair I was. It was this thing meant to make me feel real terrible and how much I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Uh, and then in the end, she'd go, why don't you want to work with us? <laughs> and he says, you've answered the question. There's some kind of weird denial going on. And I have to say, you know. And again, like not knowing what's true or what's exaggerated, the core of that argument, this idea that like Chris and Tina have both talked about how much they hate David Byrne, all the terrible things that he's done in the band. If you take all that at face value, it's like, why do you want to keep working with this guy? Like this guy who you say has taken credit from you, who, you know, hogs the spotlight, who you feel like is not a good friend or collaborator. And yet there's always this continued desire to, to get back together. That's the strange thing about this story that doesn't make sense. Like, if you could just say, like, I don't want to be around this guy, which I kind of feel like that is the ultimate message of Chris Francis' book at the end. I mean, maybe they are at that point now. But yeah, like, it, it's a strange, this cycle of abuse, maybe, <laughs> in this relationship. It's like, just stay broken up. As much as we want to see them get back together, I, in a way, like, for the emotional and psychological health of the people involved, it's, it's probably best that they don't. Right. I mean, I can almost see wanting to just sort of make peace with the situation and not end on such such bad terms. Because as the point I mentioned, David Byrne tried to sue uh, Tina and Chris when they put the heads together. Uh, he tried to sue them for, for, uh, for using the heads name. He thought it was a pretty blatant attempt to cash in on the Talking Heads brand that, that David was a part of. Uh, and I think they ended up settling... Uh, in exchange for letting David have total control over um, over putting out future catalog reissues and stuff like that, uh, which is 
kind of a big concession, letting him sort of have control over the the, the musical legacy of the band going forward too. But uh, so there, there was a lot of, of, of bad blood between them. And so maybe you could argue that they just want to be like, okay, one more time for old time's sake, let's make it good and then go our separate ways forever, which they kind of did at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, but even there, there was weirdness. Like in the yeah. Chris France book, he tells the story about how, you know, they were together at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They ended up playing a bunch of songs together. It seems like their rehearsals like went pretty smooth. And then... At the party that night, like after the ceremony, David Byrne ghosted his wife at the time, left her alone at the party, and then later told Chris that that was the night that he decided that he was going to divorce his wife. Of several decades. Yeah, exactly. Like So he essentially like left his wife after the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame ceremony. I mean, look, like David Byrne is a weirdo. I think we can say that, that he's a weird guy emotionally. I'm sure that he was very frustrating to deal with. And like, I, my heart goes out to the other people in Talking Heads who, you know, had to put up with that. But to expect him to act differently, I mean, that is the definition of insanity, you know, to expect <laughs> a different result when you have decades of evidence of a person acting a certain way. You know, at some point, you got to cash in your chips and walk away. And I feel like when you see this guy that you've known forever to be an oddball and to be emotionally difficult. And you see that like right after receiving this great honor from the rock and roll hall of fame, that's when he decides to leave his wife. And like, he does it just by ghosting her at the party. You're not going to reconcile with this guy. You know, you're not going to get the emotional closure that you need. I mean, it just seems like it's impossible with a person like that. There is a lot to unpack there. And to your, your point earlier about like, maybe we was trying to send the band a message by acting horribly and trying to get them to leave him. Maybe by getting back together with the band then that he realized, oh, that approach doesn't work with, in this case, my wife that I want to leave. So maybe after being on stage with these people, he said, you know what? Passive aggressive doesn't work when you end a relationship. Honey, we're done. So maybe that was what he got out of it. Who knows? So in reality, it was a happy ending. He learned a lesson. And he was like, <laughs> "Yeah, you know what? Instead of it. passive aggressive behavior, I'll just leave. I'll right. just jet. And that's how I'll break up with my wife. So, you know, that the more you know, you know, <laughs> life lessons right there. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and 
Flaster on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. All right, so we've now reached the part of the episode where we talk about the pro side of each part of the rivalry. You know, let's start with David Byrne. You know, we've gone through some of the sins that he committed when he was in Talking Heads, stealing songwriting credits, uh, being a glory hog, just being like a general weirdo, I guess, in terms of like just interpersonal relationships. It also must be said that he is like one of the greatest and most unique frontman in, in rock history. And I really think that he's like a pretty wonderful singer. Uh, definitely an original, you know, singer. And I don't think there's like a real dispute, you know, aside from the examples that we mentioned specifically, that he was like the main driving force behind the songwriting of the band. Um, and I don't doubt that he like took more credit than he deserved. I think that's true of like a lot of lead singers, a lot of like so-called auteurs and bands, you know, the people that we look at as being the people in charge. Often, if you talk to the other people in that person's band, they'll they'll be upset that they feel like they're not getting the proper credit. You know, I think that's like a well-established story that we've talked about in many other episodes of this show. But again, at the end of the day, there's a reason why David Byrne is the star of the band. He's the most charismatic person. And uh, I think he's probably the most unique part of the band. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And my favorite thing about him, and, and you could say that he's an incredible musician, uh, an incredible sort of like elder statesman of rock or whatever. But I, I think that his his lyrics are my favorite part of what he does. And I love his books as well for the same reason, because it's just sort of it's not poetic in, in or flowery in any way. It just slices through artifice and just gets through to like the very just weirdness of being alive. I always thought of him as like being more of an anthropologist in a way, too. And, and it makes he, he comments on things that we all do with this sense of like, isn't that weird? I mean, you've got just absurdity with things like making flippy floppy or just like, I remember he had a, a song on his latest album uh, called bullet where he just tells the story of a murder from the point of view of a bullet. And I just thought that was so, it's almost like a Yoko Ono set of lyrics or something. I, I always thought that his lyrics were like conceptual art where there was no real poetry around it. It was, I'm presenting you with this item, with this object, 
you figure out why I'm showing you this. You figure out why this has meaning for me. And that's something that I always really appreciated about his work. So if we go to the pro Chris and Tina side, I'm just going to go back to an argument I made earlier in this episode, which is that I think Talking Heads, there's a lot of great songs in their catalog, you know, and songs that have been covered by other artists and, and, and they can really stand alone as songs. However, I do feel like the greatest music of this band's career, and I'll, I guess I'll start with Remain in Light being at the top of that list, are as much to do with the sound of the band as it has to do with songwriting. And if David Byrne had taken his songs and just performed them with a studio band, it would they, he would not come up with something like Remain in Light. You know, that was the result of, again, this very hard to quantify but extremely crucial chemistry that existed between these musicians. And when you think about Talking Heads songs, what makes them go a lot of the time is the rhythm section. You know, there's great grooves. And they're grooves that, like, not only are really funky and danceable, but, like, they're not played in sort of a conventional funk R&B type way. There's something a little different about it, a little off kilter that's just totally unique to this band. And it's what to this day, I think, makes those records hold up so well. I mean, those first five records that Talking Heads put out, I mean, there's for me, that's like some of the greatest music ever made. And um, Chris and Tina, I think, along with Jerry Harrison, uh, deserve a lot of credit for how those records sound. And as much as you want to say that David Byrne as I said before, I think he's a totally unique front man. I think he's charismatic. I think he wrote some great lyrics. The sound of Talking Heads, to me, is what pulls me back into those records time and again. And uh, Chris and Tina have a lot to do with that. I'm trying to think now. I can't think of a single Talking Heads cover that I've ever heard that has stuck with me. I, I'm really trying to think. For all of their really iconic songs, I, I, I'm coming up short of thinking anyone's actually covered them in a way that, that I, I remember right now. I can't even think of any. And I think that as you said, speaks to the power of the band dynamic as a whole, as opposed to David Byrne writing great songs. I don't know how those songs would work if somebody else rearranged them and performed them in a different way. I, I think, I'm, I'm sure there's a way to do it in a way that, that that's that's interesting and, and would show a different side of it. But yeah, it's it's the sound of all those records that, that make them so special to me. And that sound was something that I think Chris, at least that's what he says in his book, set out to do at the very beginning, was kind of make a, a dancey art rock band. I mean, of course could be self-serving to say that in retrospect, but it seems like getting the rhythm section together first and having sort of a, a mission to do this uh, it was such an important uh, keystone for the band. So I, I agree. And also, like I said earlier, I think Tina is just a beast of a bass player. She's just oh, yeah. the pulse of the band. I mean, bringing just funk down to that, that CBGB's scene, like a blast of like the famous flames in Parliament. I just think she's the best. I love her. Her minimalism mixed with funk, I think, is, is so unique to her. Yeah, David Byrne making her try it all those times. That's lame, dude. <laughs> you should have been kissing her feet, man, that she was in your band. I think when we think about the talking heads together, you know, this is an argument I think you could make for like a lot of the sort of like inner band rivalries that we've talked about in this show, which is that it's really like two halves of the same whole, that the band as it worked would not be as successful or as great if you didn't have these people coming together. And I think that speaks to, you know, like when you look at the careers that these musicians have had outside of Talking Heads, you know, as beloved as David Byrne is, and like, you know, you mentioned American Utopia, that was a big hit on Broadway. That is drawing a lot on his Talking Heads material. And like, he's put out like good solo records, but like, I know like when I saw him live about 10 years ago, 
he would play a solo song and it was like very nice and people would enjoy it. Then he'd play a Talking Heads song and it was like someone let the, the theater on fire. You know, it was the contrast could not be any more telling. And these musicians just did not achieve separately what they were able to do together. And I think that really says it all. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of sounding reductive, I think about 1981 when Chris and Tina did Tom Tom Club, which was, you know, in quotes, merely popular. And David was doing the sort of highfalutin fine art of, of Catherine Wheel. I think putting that together, the sort of fine art and the genius level of, of his song craft with these elements, these dance elements that did make it popular. I think that was was the alchemy there. Right, exactly. Yeah, just put it together. Put Genius of Love with like some cool, like, you know, cut and paste lyrics, you know, from David Byrne. That would have been amazing. Well, you know, Jordan, I have to tell you that I feel really lucky to be a host of the show. Sometimes I have a breakdown and I wonder, this is not my beautiful show. This is not my beautiful co-host. <laughs> How did I get here? How did I get here? But this, this being on the show and talking about these things with you, it's truly a once in a lifetime experience for me. So thank you for talking about this with me. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Rivals. We will be back with more beefs and feuds and long simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstaff. I'm Jordan Runtalk. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.